as the children are dismissed, um, been teaching a series, Why the King James Bible? Why we use the King James Bible? Now, <clears throat> you're probably going to be a little disappointed this week because I've still got to lay a little more groundwork. I didn't plan on it. Actually, this week I had all sorts of notes, which will be next week's lesson, I think. And I was really excited. It was, I'm gonna, I was going to call it the stinkiest message you ever heard. So you can be looking forward to that. But what I figured out, or what I believe the Lord was showing me, and I'm actually going to agree with what Brother Reader said. A lot of what Brother Reader, you're going to get a second dose of that. I'm going to add to some of that. And I, we did not share messages. It's what God wants us to hear, to know, to understand. But my basis for next week's message is that a lot of things you will know by the smell of it. By the smell of it. But then it kind of come to me, you know, you really don't know if something smells bad until you know what smells right. Okay? So today's message is what I'll call truth's footers, the second message on why we use the King James Bible. Now last week we began part one of why we use the King James Bible. I subtitled that message, It Is Written. Uh, the takeaway from that message is that God has written down His very own words to mankind. They are specific, they're perfect, they're complete. It is truth and can be fully trusted. Also, God the Father uses the Holy Spirit of God to guide holy men of God to write His words so all mankind can know them forever and ever. We looked at scriptures and all these things. All the words were written by God are the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. These men of God were merely instruments. Holy men of God had more thoughts and writings that God did not use as his written word. The only words and thoughts written and established as Holy Scripture are those that God ordained through the Holy Spirit of God. And we ought to be glad about that. We call God's established words the Holy Scriptures. We have no worries that man's fallibility is in any part of the Word of God. God called out a group of people, the Jews, as an instrument to preserve his words of the Old Testament, also known as the oracles of God. The Bible will use that word. Oracle simply means what, what God has said. They wrote down what God has said. And particularly, he used the priests and the scribes. The methodology, the fear, and the carefulness of these men, are not, if you look at it, are nothing short of God's wisdom and supernatural power of preserving his word perfectly. The New Testament words of God were preserved by early... Christianity with various tests that we determine what we call the canon of the New Testament Holy Scripture. It's well documented and well accepted by the very early churches. Mike Reeder mentioned last week, I like how he said it, they knew what was the Holy Scripture and what was not. They sealed the Word of God with their very life's blood and the Holy Scripture was established early on in church history in the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek languages. In short, last week, we fully understand that we have 
God's Word. It is signed by God, sealed by God, and delivered to us by God. It is written. By the way, what He has written are written in books, books in heaven that will judge the unsaved when they appear before Him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, short, tall, wealthy, poor, call it whatever you want, Any, anybody here, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. And listen to what this says. You're going to have to listen real close to catch this. According to their works. According to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now I'll tell you, I just have to admit, I got really, just God took me in a, in a place and uh, just, it just God's goodness and his, his love, his grace and just his wonderfulness overcame me. Um, as I was writing this. Whether it will while I preach today, I don't know. But His Holy Spirit kind of came over me because I'm so glad I can say they. Those in the white throne, they. Not me, not we. Because of the uns only the unsaved appear at this judgment. I'm going to read verse 13 again. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Let me tell you something about an event that happens well before the white throne judgment. The white throne judgment is the very end of time. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died... And rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, O Lord, come quickly today, if you would. See, there's an event that happens before the white throne of judgment. We're not in the sea and in hell and in dead that's going to be raised up before the white throne. We're already there. We're with him. We, the saved, are to encourage one another that when this body dies, or should Jesus come while we are alive and raptures us out, we will be bodily resurrected to be ever with the Lord. Again, 1 
13 of Revelation chapter 20 says that the dead in the earth, whether those bodies and souls are buried in the sea or land, will be judged in the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. All the Christians will have already been resurrected and with the Lord at the time of the rapture. Everyone dies. The unsaved are in hell awaiting the great white throne judgment. I'm going to set down some footers. If you know anything about some people who are starting to build houses. The footers are what's lays on the ground. We, anything, Jesus Christ is the ground. You know, when you build a house, it's not the footers. It's what the footers sit on. The footers have to be substantial, too, to sit on that. But you have to dig down until the soil is at the right compaction level to support everything above it. Jesus Christ supports everything. But then there's some footers laid down here, and that's what I need to say. This is the truth, the truth, the only truth. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which we'll read in just a moment, when a Christian dies, their soul and spirit go directly to be forever with the Lord and their bodies will be resurrected, whether living or dead, at the rapture, well before the white throne judgment. Wouldn't you like to know what is written to know if you are saved or not? On which side you are? If translated versions of the Bible disagree, don't you want to know which is God's truth? When he pulls out the books, don't you want to be sure you are reading from the same book he has? <laughs> you ever had that problem when somebody's reading from a whole different book than you're reading? That's a problem. There are two, I want to just lay down two footers today, two basic footers. And there'll be some things laid upon those. But that is truth that's written by God concerning salvation. He uses the instrument of saved people to proclaim it simply. And there's only one entity that can reveal it to you. God has given that responsibility to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. How do you know when God is speaking to you? It's a good question. You know, you know I've, I've just thought about this. How, Lord, how can I explain? You know, because people get, you know, did, did a voice come out of heaven? You know, how do I know God's speaking to me? Let me give you an example. Let's say an atheist or an agnostic comes and hears someone preaching the word of God and the truth of God's word starts to unsettle his spirit, perhaps making mad or perhaps put the desire to get out of there. This is called conviction because the truth is warring with untruth inside that individual and it's unsettling. If you've ever been saved, you'll know what that was like because you've got all that you were born with, all that you believe, and this truth is coming and fighting with that to get you to submit to God's truth. If you don't believe the Word of God, why should they be unsettled? Why shouldn't atheists ever get unsettled? Well, there is one reason. The Holy Spirit's not speaking to them. It's the Holy Spirit's work. Now, like we're going to find out today it's all of God. But brother, what Brother Reader was talking about today, it's none of us, it's all of him. Okay? Now, another example is God's word speaking to a child. The Bible actually tells us that all need to come to God in childlike faith. 
It's interesting to watch children come to the Lord. They begin to get some knowledge. They learn Bible stories. They hear the gospel. But at first, it never really gets past their mind. They, they try to conceive it, but it never really gets into their heart until the Holy Spirit begins to speak. And you'll begin to see a difference. And they'll begin to feel a difference. That's God speaking to their heart. They could have everything right said about salvation, but it's not until the Holy Spirit begins to communicate that truth. That truth puts a fear of hell and escape of hell by trusting Jesus. It's a very simple message. They get very unsettled and bothered. It becomes very personal. It's very simple because with children, it's not complicated. <laughs> this is how simple salvation can be. I am not right with God. They're easy to, you know, children are easy to accept that. I am not right with God. That's what he said. I believe it. I feel that. The penalty is hell. I understand that. I'm fearful of that. But Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life on the cross so I could put all my trust in him to be saved. It's as simple as that, but it's the Holy Spirit working in the heart and the submission of that child to accept the Lord. Now, adults who are not saved have Satan's walls built against the Holy Spirit, walls of pride. Here's some of those. I must admit, I was wrong all these years. The more years you got, the more years you got to say, I was all wrong. I have been in church, professed to be a Christian, maybe even worked in the ministry. What will people think if I get saved? It gets, it's the same old salvation, but man, there's a lot built up with adults here. I must admit I was wrong. For parents, they have to admit they led their children wrong. <clears throat> mm. I was raised Catholic. When I went witness to my parents, they had to deal with that. Those thoughts. What about my wicked lifestyle that I know will need to change and my sin that may get exposed in the process? What about the bad friends, acquaintances, or even family members whose relationships must get farther apart or even removed? It's getting tough, ain't it? What about the thought of having God take away bad habits that I enjoy? What about my past religious beliefs that I must deny? This is quite prevalent in foreign missions. A lot of times, people in other countries will take on Christianity, but they just add it to their Buddhism, to their whoever else came along. You've got to wipe all that out. All what you believed and all what you were taught because the truth is, it's Jesus and only Jesus. How about when you realize Christianity will come at the cost of your money? Your money. <laughs> it's his body all of a sudden. Your, your time and activities you enjoy. Sometimes an adult has such a list of bad things that they have done they don't think they can ever be forgiven. Some harbor bitterness and misplaced hate with God while others are just plain, flat-out evil and have been given over to a reprobate mind as listed in Romans chapter 1. We could go on and on with the boneyard of life's complicity that keeps people from salvation. 
Yet salvation is the same for them as it is for a child. I am wrong, and God's judgment is upon me. I turn over my life to Jesus, who died for me. I put my past, my present, and future completely and wholly in the hands of God, and His written word, I relinquish ownership of my life to God. I give it all. Like Brother Reader said, there is so much we could talk about. There is so much happens at the even at the simplicity of salvation, even as a child and what they ask, and all what happens. And it's, it's a wonderful thing in the life as a Christian to learn more and more and more and more of what all that means. Because they say, well, you've got to repent. Well, what, what did I just said there? I said I was wrong. I, everything I was doing, I'm turning to you. That's repentance. Maybe you didn't think of that word, and maybe you didn't. It all happens when the heart is right, and when you see you for yourself, and you see Christ for who He is. I love how Galatians is one of my favorite verses. Galatians 2.20 describes it. It said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What Brother Reader said is at the end of his message today, was may we go out and do things because we love Him. There's the motivating reason. It takes care of all things. You're going to find a lot of bad doctrine and a lot of bad wording, and you're going to find a lot of bad scriptures out there, not holy scriptures, but uh, interpretations of the Word of God and so forth that take away from these simple, basic truths. When you know these simple, basic truths, Everything, the other things will, won't smell right because there are, a lot of them are very teeny and tiny just like Satan would do. What is being saved? It's by the terms God's mercy and God's grace. What is mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And that probably kind of goes together. I'll read that again. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. I don't get hell and a life of believing. All there is to life is what I can eke out on my own with temporal peace. Death, a finality of my life and an unsurety. Just look at the responses to the pandemic unbelieving and worry people because all they have is this life. When some little girl, lady, can come up to a full-grown man and point in his face and say, you should be wearing a mask, it's because she's fearful and unbelieving. That's all she has, and, that's, and he represents a shortness of life to her. You've got to understand where these feelings come from. has happened. I know the guy who told me about it. He said, well, I don't care about you. <laughs> and he went on. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. 
I get a new life here when I get saved. Start all over a new, a new life, a new being, a peace that passes all understanding. A life of eternal meaning with death securely entrusted in God and an eternal life of bliss awaiting. I love life here. There's something better beyond here. And I have to trust and know that God has that timing in his hands. Whether it's today or God forbid if I should live over 100 years old. <laughs> Whatever his will is, that's, it's in his hands. What a peace that is. See, it's so different from the world. There's nothing we did or can do to merit salvation. I'm going to do a lot of repeating of what we just heard this morning. It's none of you and all of God. I recently heard a preacher quote this. It seems it's, it's not just me and just not Brother Reader. I turn on the radio and I hear the stuff. You know, it's God speaking to us. I think he quoted Charles Spurgeon. It's, he said something to this effect. If we have any belief that any work of ours is part of our salvation, however tiny it might be, we are all together and completely lost. This is no new revelation. This is from the time of Christ, folks. I mentioned a little while ago that God's written word, is, it's kind of like a contract having two parts, or I'm going to have two footers here. The first part, or the first footer, is you are a sinner. You were born that way, and at some age, you are a sinner by choice. You can't tell me you can find anybody, anything else but this. Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin and entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. As it is written, Romans 3.10, There is none righteous, no, not one. We can sing that song. Don't we sing that in here? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's complete. It's everybody. It's all. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Romans 3.11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3.19, now we know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We are judged according to His written word. You better watch what is written. You better watch what is said and who is saying it. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27, as appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. The first part of God's word, the very basics, contract with man, you might call it, is that he's born a sinner. He is incapable of saving himself or earning God's favor to be saved. He is lost, condemned to hell, without hope of himself or fellow mankind. The depravity of man, we call it. There's some fancy words that we use, but there's just, we're hopeless, helpless. We are lost and we can't help ourselves and no other man 
can help us out of that. And all mankind will be judged at the white throne judgment, those who aren't saved, and cast into hell because their works that they claim for salvation are all found unworthy before God. See, you're judged in the white throne judgment according to your works. In other words, these people are going to come before God and say, I did this and I did that. And all our works they're going to put before them. And you can put any kind of works you want before God. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There's people who said, I've done this for God. I've, 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 uh, you know, I've done miracles. I've done this. I've done that. All in your name even. He says, depart from me. Anybody, I'll tell you, you know what I'm kind of, God asked to present myself. I say, I have nothing. I have only Jesus. Jesus died for me. That's all I claim, Lord. And that'll be enough. That'll be enough. We learned about that. The writing's gone. <laughs> Hope you got it in your mind. But there's a second part of God's contract, of His written word. A very foundational part. What we might call it the gospel clause, or the mercy or grace clause, the totally free clause, or the gift clause. It's kind of funny because some of these terms, you know, before after I'd written all this down, came up this morning. There's a single word that separates the clause from the main body of being, being doomed to hell without any hope. The word is but. I like to think of the word but as forget everything you just heard. Now listen to the important part. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But <laughs> the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only thing that satisfies payment of our sin is the shedding of blood and the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Bible term used that indicates this, which we talked about it today, the total remission of sins to God's full satisfaction is propitiation. We didn't get there. We'll read these scriptures. We didn't read them this morning. Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 1 John 2, 2, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. <laughs> 1 John 4, 10, here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Salvation is all of God and none of man. This is God's offer in this contract. See, we've got to say all that other stuff, but here, here's the good part. You can be saved. It's God's offer, and what an offer it is. You know, the older a person gets, and I fell into this camp too, you know, to some extent. The harder it is to see themselves as utterly bad and unworthy before God. We, we like to think good of ourselves. 
we begin to look at ourselves in the light of comparison to others. Some thinking that they are good enough to be saved, while others believe they are so bad that they could never be saved. It is hard to believe that God condemns all as sinners. All unworthy. All unclean before a holy and sinless God. But this is the truth, folks. I remember I accepted, <laughs> and there's going to be things when you trust God. You, you don't know everything. You know just enough to give your heart really holy and over, over to God. The thought of me not being good enough for God, I, I struggled with. God had to show me that because you get so locked into some things. But man must come to the conclusion that they are lost if they're ever to get saved. What person who's, who's not lost asks for somebody to show them where to go? This being true, it's also hard for mankind that God, if, if we're all that bad, that God loved them so much that he would give the most precious he has, his son, so that we might be reconciled to him as his own dear children, folks. But this is the truth. It's not comprehensible to mankind. It's, it's love beyond human love. It's hard for us to understand. Paul said if it was possible... He would give his life for his kinsmen, the Jews. Romans 9, 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, from my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But he couldn't, because he wasn't worthy. He, he wasn't a propitiation. He would, he would die, and that's what he would do, die, and he wouldn't give no life to anybody else. But it showed his heart. He, you know, man's heart. Sometimes men's hero, heroics cause him to give his life for the sake of his friends. John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. But God's love exceeded above all what man, can, what all we can muster up. Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us. And while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by what? His blood. Not any inkling of any work of anything of us. By his blood we shall be saved from the wrath through who? Him. Him alone. Want to know if you're truly saved or not? According as it is written, all of him, none of you. All because of you he came, and all because of him you can be saved. How do you become saved from God's wrath? Romans 10, 8, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that the Holy Spirit's working on you, it's stirring up. That is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth 
confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is another aspect. When you call upon the name of the Lord with the right heart and in truth, a lot of things happen that you'll just begin to understand more and more. This first part of God's written contract or covenant or whatever you want to term it, the righteous judgment of all mankind to hell and a lake of fire for those who refuse to accept the second part. The exception clause of his written word, believing on Jesus, the Son of God, acknowledging that his death, his burial, his resurrection was at the cost of your personal sin. And to ask him to be the Savior and Lord of your life. Now, I can only give my testimony and you can only give your testimony. I just remember in my mind's eye and through the scriptures and it was at church that that is if Jesus was looking at me and saying, I'm doing this for you. Very personal. And it affected my heart. That's the Holy Spirit revealing truth in the simplest way that you can that can hit your heart. You know, truth can be simple into the heart. It can be so complicated up in here. I just said, Lord, save me. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I, I just confess you are right. Now, I was wrong. I don't know what to do, but to ask you to save me. There's also a judgment to the Christians. Okay, don't think <laughs> we get away with them, but our judgment is a little bit different. Second Corinthians five one. Well, let's 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 go to First Corinthians chapter three verse eleven. First Corinthians chapter three verse eleven. For other foundation can no man lay that than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. <laughs> See the foundation? There's that dirt, that solid dirt that everything can rest upon. The rock, you might say. You know, you're, you're doing good. You go out there and you find a humongous rock that's been sitting there forever and hasn't moved and set your house on that. That is a good place to set it. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Now, let's pause for a moment on these two verses. What are these two verses revealing? It's not talking about works of salvation. <laughs> it's stating that the only works that will come into judgment here is those that are built on Jesus Christ. Not on you, but on Jesus Christ. This is the judgment of Christians, and we'll have... Works that will be like gold and silver and precious stones that the fire will not burn. And we will have works of wood, hay, and stubble that the fire will burn. It says, every man's work shall be made manifest, verse 13, for the day shall declare because it is revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So we see here, we are not harmed in this. 
the first group in the white throne judgment, they're, they're, they're judged according to their works. They come before God with their works. And it doesn't matter what they are. They're not judged. They're, they're thrown. They're cast into hell. But our works are judged on those things that we either do or don't do for Christ. And it simply says, we're going to go through this fire one day as a Christian. Imagine it. We're going to walk through the fire and we're going to be alive on the other side. The Bible says we'll not be harmed. But all our works that we have and all the rewards that we can take with us, someone's just going to burn. And when we get through, what's left is what we have. Don't you want to know what's written about those works? The true things of God, what the, what the true word of God is and what it says about that? Listen, we're not going to fight with God when we get to heaven. Can you imagine that? What are you going to say? He knows everything. I don't, I'm not giving any account. God, you, God you're going to do it all. And you will be right. I bow before you. By the way, everybody's going to bow before him. And some people are going to... I believe even the most evil of ones are going to see God. And then they're going to say, I was wrong. And he was right. And it's too late. And they'll go to hell. We only have this life, folks. Unless you want to read some other writings of what man has done. And we're going to get to those next week. Because you're going to smell it. Eternal loss and reward are at stake. Man, let me give you just the basic footers. Man, man is depraved. He's a sinner and by birth and by choice. There's nothing in his power and any man's power to save himself. He is totally helpless, unworthy before God. He is under the wrath of God with an eternal sentence to hell. Period. God the Father. God is not willing that any should perish. So the only way to satisfy the penalty of sin upon all mankind was to sacrifice his only son. All the sins of the world would be put upon his son Jesus and he would suffer and die for the sins of the world. The sinless to bear the sin so that the sinner could be sinless. Considered sinless. Good lesson this morning. A lesson on Philemon. Man has absolutely nothing to do with the work of salvation. Absolutely nothing to do. You know, think about this. God is so wise. What if we had, like men, people like to think, like certain, there will be a certain amount of people that go to hell and a certain amount of people to go to heaven, and there's some kind of line drawn there. For one, you've just sentenced half the world to hell on your account because you drew a line. You know what God said? I'll tell you this. I consider them all sinners and all unworthy so that everybody looks the same way. That everybody can be saved. What wisdom. 
if it was us, we'd probably be drawing some kind of line. I don't know what we'd be doing. It's crazy. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made, you heard this word, and man, the more you understand God's word, we shall be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Join heirs with Jesus Christ. There's no other religion that even comes close to the written word of God, who God is. It just stands way out. We should be proclaiming it, folks. There's nothing that even really compares to it. It's all foolishness, the rest of it. God the Son, in obedience to his Father, he laid down his life willingly as a sacrifice for sin. He was sinless. He was sinless because he only did what God the Father told him to do. He did not act on his own, even though he was God and he could have. He only did what the Father, that's why he said, if you see me, you see the Father, because all I'm doing is what the Father's telling me. I'm just reflecting that. They had a hard time with that. He suffered, died, and was buried because he was sinless. He rose from the grave, paving the way for mankind to escape judgment by believing on him. God the Holy Spirit. God's word, his message, his meaning, his personal call to mankind is solely and only by the Spirit of God. I'm going to give you an interesting story here in a, in a moment so that you can maybe see all this a little bit. In accordance to the word of God, the Holy Spirit acts through the Son of God and solely on God's perfect timing. It's God's timing too. We, we don't tell God what time it is. He tells us when the time is. Now, what about saved mankind? God gave his believers the responsibility and privilege of being the instruments for writing his words, keeping his words, proclaiming his words, preaching his words in the presence of all the world. Though God gave this responsibility to the saved, born-again people of God, the ultimate fulfilling of it does not rest on men. It does not rest on us either. God hasn't entrusted all these important things to us. It rests on God. God does not fail. He's the one who keeps it all. God's will will be done. Remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem and the people were praising him and the furious Pharisees told Jesus to tell them to rebuke him? They shouldn't be doing that. What did Jesus say? And some of the Pharisees came among the multitude and said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace... The stones would immediately cry out. When John the Baptist was baptizing, he said to the religious multitude, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Woo! Some hard preaching there, but it's truth. What about Jonah, who fled from the will of God? God saw to it that Jonah would do his will. It's one of his. See, he has control over us when we're truly saved. It just depends how he wants to do it. He could not hide from God. God could have easily removed Jonah and done his job some other way with some other person, but God took Jonah to the woodshed, or should I say, to the watershed, 
and used Jonah to spite himself and then set him in a corner. And you look at the last words, he leaves him with some, some thoughts about love. Jonah, I want you to think about this, and it ends there. This is what God's love is about. Think about that, young man. Sometimes God takes us to the woodshed and teaches us that way. Just saying our responsibility can be replaced by a stone, or we can be whipped into it by the hand of God, or he can simply relieve us and use another. Now I'm going to give you a little story, a little fun story. I was replacing the hot water heater in the house yesterday. Joel was there and wanting to help. It could have been any of the grandkids. I allowed him to come with me to help me with the job. He had to watch me saw a pipe off first. Then we went to the garage and got some wrenches. He wanted to carry the little wrench with the red handle. And so he did. Now, replacing a hot water heater was way above Joel's ability. And he was unable to achieve it. Think about this as Joel representing a child of God and me representing God. We'll only do this briefly. Joel had a desire, a true desire to see my will done. He was interested in my project. Think about this child of God. He likes spending time with me. Papa or Pop Pop or, or Uncle or Aunt. He likes spending time with you. He had, now this, now the analogy breaks down pretty hard here. Joel had full confidence that I'd be successful getting the job done. <laughs> he just wanted to be a part of it. But think of it in God's eyes. Though he could not do too much at his age, there was something he could do and he did it. He also asked a lot of questions so he could learn more. Why, why, why? Me preaching, me doing whatever, you doing whatever, you doing whatever. It's, we carry God's little wrench around. We're a part of it. Maybe we get a bigger wrench. Maybe we will let us solve. We get a little older. And all those things we could do for him because it's a relationship. It's all about a relationship. He doesn't need us to do it. As a matter of fact, it's his responsibility. He will see his will done, folks. It is not dependent on you. But when you ask for his will to be done, you become part of his will and you become involved in it. And you begin to build a relationship, you see. If you want to go out and play with the world and do all the things you want to do and stay out of church and all those sort of things. <laughs> Where's Joel? Thought he wouldn't have helped me. Where's he at? Where's Andy? Where's Tim? Where's where it's Nick? Who, you know, put your name in there. See, but this analogy of Joel there is this is the place of the sweet will of God in our lives where we learn God's will we work close to him we share his successes I told I made sure I told Joel I got the hot water heater and I was on the phone because he had to go home and we develop a sweet relationship we work so close with him that we begin to act like him you know what boys do they act like their fathers in a spiritual sense, in a perfect sense, Christ, as we develop this relationship with him, we become like him.
Now I'm going to end with this a little long today. Genesis 3.1, now the serpent was more subtle, subtle, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Something's starting to smell already. Why are you questioning God? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Shouldn't something have smelled wrong about that? Did God not tell me the truth? For God knoweth that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And then here's where it becomes, if it feels good, do it. And the woman saw the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree did desire to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And we know the rest of the story, it turned out bad. Because she didn't smell it before she ate it. She didn't discern it. Some of the things, folks, you have the spirit living in you. And sometimes it's just, my wife is famous for this. There's something she thinks she don't know if it's bad or good. She says, here, smell this. (laughs) Sometimes it's like, whoa! (laughs) And sometimes it's like, hmm, hmm, I don't I don't think it's good. Let's just throw it, throw it out. So next week, that's the smelly message. There's going to be a lot of things that smell. When you line up with the KJV and, and everything that's built around it, and you see all its comparatives out there, some things are going to really smell. I just laid some foundations. And what they're going to do is they're going to tell you something different from the foundations I just told you that the Word of God says. It's going to leave openings between when you die and when you go to heaven. And there's an option, this option out here, a place where you can be, if you're bad, you can still be prayed into heaven. It's, it's going to give you options like if you, are, if you are baptized, you'll go to heaven. Just twist a few little things here. Just, just a little bitty bad smell. It'll attack the deity of Christ. And you'll be able to go through a lot of these and say, well, you know, it's, it's saying the same thing. It smells bad. Some people say flat out stinks. It's okay. Whether it smells a little bit or stinks, it's going in the trash as far as I'm concerned. So we'll learn about all these things. These are the nitty gritty things that you'll want to hear to understand, to give you all the little facts and things behind all these versions that have been written. Um, but, I want you to, but I want you to see it next week through your nose, through the smell of it, because it's not going to smell like what I just told you what the footers were. Let's pray. Father, come before you this morning, Lord God, as the pianist comes to play. I see two major responses out of this message. One is, what 
a Savior. What a God. How small I am, but He wants me and He wants, he wants to be with me. And He doesn't want me hurt out in the world and the things there and He's drawn them unto Himself. I get to do what He wants to do. I get to work on His projects with Him. What a wonderful thing. Or perhaps I haven't given it all to Jesus. Maybe I'm holding on to something else. Trusting Christ means letting go of everything else and letting Him build it in your life, Him full control. Anybody who comes to God thinking they have anything to do with it is lost. May we live our lives if we are saved because He so loved us and He so loved the world that we should love the world, that we should be Warning people. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the, the wonderful option. To proclaim it. But to let God's word, his son, and his Holy Spirit do all the work. something about his name. Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's all in him. somebody else about him today father thank you for your blessed word thank you for your clear instructions for we ask it in jesus name amen you are dismissed